First Thessalonians chapter 5 in your Bibles, please. We are so nearly finished with the epistle to the Thessalonians, the first epistle at least. And there's just a few more verses left and then we'll be transitioning into Second Thessalonians. As we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this evening, verses 21 and 22, we come to a passage of Scripture that uh, contains probably one of the most confused, uh, perhaps we might even say one of the most marginalized teachings in all the Scripture. The topic that we speak on this evening is the topic of discernment. And when we speak of discernment, let me give you a, a, a definition of discernment. Discernment is the power or faculty of the mind by which it distinguishes one thing from another. The power or faculty of the mind by which it distinguishes one thing from another. That's the, the general definition of discernment. Now, when we specifically speak of biblical discernment, we're speaking of the capacity of our mind or our heart to distinguish between that which pleases God and that which is that which does not or that which is best and that which is not that which is righteous and that which is not that which we ought to do biblically and that which we ought not do biblically biblical discernment is imperative to the christian life and the absence of biblical discernment can lead us quite easily to Spiritual destruction. Discernment, as we think about the concept, specifically biblical discernment, uh, it comprises three ideas. The first idea, as we talk about biblical discernment, is having an understanding of what the Bible says, of what the Bible expects, of what God wants from us. If you want to be a discerning believer, you first need to learn what God wants from you. And to learn what God wants from you comes from understanding His Word, for His Word is the revelation of God's will to us. We spoke about that uh, earlier in the book of, uh, in, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. The second idea that we layer on top of knowing what the Bible says or knowing what God expects is a willingness to do what the Bible expects, a willingness to do what God wills. So we need to know what God's will is and then we need to be willing to do what God's will is or to do what God has asked from us. And the final idea, the third layer of biblical discernment is having a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit with respect to what God wills, with respect to what the Bible expects. In other words, we do understand from Scripture that not everything as far as how we live our lives is going to be the same. That though we will all, we ought to all agree on, uh, by and large, what, what God's will is, and we ought to all, uh, be willing to pursue God's will, how we each apply the will of God to our lives on a, on a daily basis might look a little bit different one from another. We might have different standards, is the word I'll use there, as application to the same biblical principles. And we've talked about this many times and we've seen this play out 
amongst ourselves and, and we, we've spoken of it in several different contexts before. And, <coughs> excuse me. And this is exactly what we're going to learn about this evening. We're going to take a look at, at two verses. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 21 and 22. And through them, we're going to seek to understand uh, the biblical obligation that we have to being discerning followers of Christ, to exercising discernment as we seek to follow Christ. And so if you're there with me, please uh, read as, uh, follow along excuse me, as I read verses 21 and 22 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says, as he writes to the church of Thessalonica, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. And we begin with verse 21. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. We really can't separate this in context from verse 22, but we'll look at it individually and then bring it together again this evening. The word prove. The Bible says prove all things. And that word prove in the Greek literally means to test or to approve. To test or to approve. It's used in the same manner regularly in the Old Testament that you'll be reading through the Old Testament and the Scriptures will say that God sought to prove someone's love. Oftentimes He uses this idea with Israel that God sought to prove Israel. And the idea there is to test Israel, to test their love, to test their faith, to test their resolution to Him. And we also see this in, in the other way around, that, that people would prove God, that they would test God's faithfulness, that they would prove God's faithfulness, and not in the way of tempting Him, but rather um, to exercise themselves and, and um, expect that God would be faithful. And of course, He was every time. In both instances, circumstances arose that tested the other person and they either passed the test or they did not pass the test. Sometimes God would do something to prove Israel's love and in fact it would reveal that Israel did not love God as they ought. Uh, other times people would do things to prove God's faithfulness and certainly we know that every time God showed Himself faithful to them. And so God, through Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that we should prove, that we should test everything. Test everything. Prove everything. Approve everything. And it is within this context that, that the second phrase of chapter, uh, verse 21 and the, the um, whole phrase in verse 22 finds its context that we are testing all things. Well, what are we testing for? We are testing for good and for evil. Testing for good and for evil. And as we consider this idea of proving all things, I'd like us to consider 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. You'll see it on the screen behind me. It says this, Beloved, believe not every spirit, But try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Here we see this same word to test or to prove, but we see another translation of it, the word try in this verse. Try the spirits. Test the spirits. Prove the spirits 
whether they are of God. He exhorts the believers not to believe every spirit, but to rather test them. Now, when we think of the idea of a spirit, we often think of something that is, uh, we might say something like a ghost, an unseen apparition that has influence over us or influence over our surroundings. And when we think of a spirit, that's oftentimes what we think of. Or perhaps we think of the Holy Spirit, who is a person, and uh, He dwells inside of us. He also works outside of us. Jesus Christ um, likened the working of the Spirit in John chapter 3 to the wind. He said, as the wind blows and it comes from a direction, it goes to the direction and we don't know what direction it came from and we don't know where it's going. Uh, so is the, the work of the Holy Spirit that He blows where He will and He works how He will. And it's, it's not ours to question the working of the Holy Spirit. And that's oftentimes how we think of a spirit. But really, this isn't the only idea that comprises this concept of a spirit, is it? If I were to ask you, what do you think the spirit of this age is? Or what is the spirit of this age? Most everyone in this room would understand what I'm asking. I'm asking about the general direction, the prevalent worldview, the um, overall disposition of the age in which we live. In this context, the idea of a spirit is a truth claim or the basis upon which thoughts and actions are by and large directed. We would say that the spirit of this age is um, postmodernism or secular humanism. The spirit of this age is um, that of uh, self-validation. Uh, we could say a lot of different ideas as far as if we ask, what is the spirit of this age? And, and that is the kind of idea that John is warning about in 1 John chapter 4, that we ought to try the spirits, every truth claim, every thought process, every worldview, every direction that the world, that culture, that the church, that a spiritual authority a political authority, that every direction they would seek to direct us in, we need to try them. We need to test them. John says, don't believe every spirit, every direction, every truth claim, every process. Rather, test every spirit and approve only those thoughts, only those perceptions, only those truth claims that are consistent with the character and the nature and the will of and the Word of God. And the reason why John feels compelled in 1 John to make such a statement is because he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many people spouting false claims, saying they're true, but in fact they are not, compelled by false spirits, have gone out into the world. Many false claims are out there. Many false ideas and philosophies are tugging for your loyalty. Every day you have philosophies, truth claims, thoughts, and directions that are tugging for your loyalty. And John says, test them, try them, make sure they're of God. There's an entire world out there that is competing for your loyalty. The spirit of feminism is trying to get you to agree with its culturally Marxist agenda and morally backward thinking. 
The spirit of Marxism itself is trying to convince you that if you yield all of your moral moorings on the altar of communitarianism or on some false notion of cultural utopia that you'll be uh, better for it. The spirit of sodomy is trying to get you to agree with its attempt to erode the family with its moral ambiguity as they seek to erode not just family, but the very fiber of culture through the family. The spirit of ecumenicism, the idea that all churches can work together, that we can just ignore our differences and come together for, through our similarities, is trying to get you to think that you can win people to Christ by sacrificing all of your biblical distinctives. The spirit of rebellion is trying to convince you and all of society at all levels that we know better than our authorities and that we are entitled to question them and to oppose them in every area. And these are just a few of the countless spirits, the countless truth claims, thought processes, directions that compete for our thinking, that compete for our loyalty, and by extension compete for our actions. And not only could we spend all night talking about all of these spirits that are in the world, we could spend all night speaking specifically of spirits in the religious realm, couldn't we? Of all of the different religious directions that, that men, all of the different truth claims that people are trying to pull us in from a religious perspective or from a, a spiritual perspective. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, prove all things. And as we continue to the second phrase, what he says then is once you've proved it all, once you've tested it all, hold fast to that which is good. Once we've tried everything, we need to hang on only to that which is good, only to that which is right. And we need to hang on to that with everything that we got. We need to hold on to that at all costs. What I'd like to do now, we've considered the, the claim or the, the command, prove all things. We've considered what it means or why we need to prove all things. And now as we consider this idea of holding fast to that which is good, I'd like us to walk through the scriptural record this evening, understanding how to try the spirits and which of those spirits are worth holding fast unto. And we begin our journey in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which say this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove, this is that same word, to test or to approve, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Proof through submission. Proof through submission. In this passage, Paul exhorts believers to have a mindset of yieldedness, a willingness to die to yourself, to place every fiber of your being on the altar of God and make it usable to God as a holy and a living sacrifice. And Paul tells us in these verses that as we place ourselves on the altar of sacrifice, a willing yieldedness to God, that we will desire not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed and to have our minds renewed. This means that we refuse 
temptations and fleshly desires to conform ourselves to the culture around us, to the thoughts and the desires and the actions of the world, what we'll see in a little bit. Uh, and we talked about this morning as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And as we do this, as we reject the, the ideas of the world, the thoughts of the world, as we reject the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, as we reject these things and rather allow our minds to be transformed by the Word of God, Paul says we prove, we approve, we test and we find valid the things that are good and are acceptable and are perfect and are, by and large, the will of God. In short, these verses are telling us this. When, when we die to self, when you die to self, when you reject the call of the world, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, when you pursue the mind of Christ exclusively, when you clothe yourself in submission and humility, your life will prove the validity of the Word of God and of the new and living way of Christ. And so your life will become the approval of that which is good. Our next stop takes us to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 11, where the scriptures tell us this But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Continuing on the next slide. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Ye walk as, or walk, excuse me, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And here's our word again, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Paul lays it out here beautifully for us. He gives a big long list of things which are not acceptable to the Lord. Things which he says are not becoming of saints. Now, some of these things are obvious, overtly sinful, things that we know, things that we could go to several other passages of Scripture. In fact, we did in Sunday school this morning, right? 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians chapter 4. And we talked about these areas that are not right before God. Fornication and uncleanness and covetousness and reviling and drunkenness and, and all of those um, things that, that God speaks of that are, are not right but notice what else he mentioned. And it was on the, the past slide. He said, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor jesting. And he says, these are things which are not convenient. Things that aren't necessarily in and of themselves deeply sinful, we might say, if we uh, were to create a, a false hierarchy of sins. But things that are not deeply sinful or overtly sinful, but things that are, are more or less a poor testimony. Things that Paul calls not convenient. Foolish talking. Jesting. Allowing our words to come out of our mouths but to not really have any legitimate meaning. Not taking things seriously. Paul says these are things that are not convenient. And Paul desires us to see these things as things that we ought to avoid. 
and rather prove everything by this standard. He says, don't let people deceive you into thinking otherwise. Don't be partakers with them. Don't be partakers in these things. Don't be partakers in uncleanness and fornication. Don't be partakers in foolish jesting. Don't be partakers in foolish talking. And why? He says, because you're not children of darkness. That's not you anymore. You're a child of the light. God intends you to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says there. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. God doesn't want you bearing the fruit of foolishness and uncleanness and frivolity. And in doing so, Paul says, you will prove what is acceptable unto God. And once we've proved it, we need to hold fast to it. We don't yield these good things on the altar of convenience. We don't give these good things away for the sake of temporary promises of personal pleasure or advantage. We find out what God hates. We find out what God loves. We don't just find out what is good. We find out what is best. And we cling to that which is best. We hang on to that which is best with all that we have. And do take note of the fact, as I mentioned already, that this isn't just sin versus not sin. Paul mentions things which are not convenient. It's spoken of in 1 Corinthians as those things which might be lawful but not expedient. Those things which are not inherently sinful but are not worthy of a believer's time, are not worthy of a believer's efforts. The Christian church today is drowning in things which are lawful but not expedient. It strips us of our distinctives and of God's capacity to use us as He could otherwise because we're so distracted or we've discredited ourselves to a degree that He cannot effectively use us. And when we do this, when we hold fast to that which is good, something that Paul regularly calls the more excellent way, this is what we find. We find that we have proved all things and we found that excellent way. In other words, God doesn't want us to be spiritual C students. He wants us to be spiritual A students. He doesn't just want us to settle for a passing grade. He wants us to test everything to find that which is excellent and He wants us to hang on to that with all of our might. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Consider Philippians chapter 1 where Paul says this in verses 9-11 through 11, and we see this word again. He says, This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may, here it is, approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of of God. Here Paul says it. He says, test everything and prove or approve the things which are best. Find those things. Understand from the Word of God what is best and hold on to it with all that you have. Grab a hold and don't let go. Don't just live your faith sometimes. Live it all the time. Don't just live some faith. Live, consume yourself with faith. Consume yourself with the things that are most excellent. Be defined in your life by Christ. Love that which God loves because you love God.
Seek that which God loves because it's worth seeking. Long for that which God loves because it pleases God. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. And this is what Paul asks us to do as we step back into verse 21. Look at everything in this life with a discerning eye to determine the spirit of that thing. Then, through the Word of God, determine whether it's excellent or not. And then, keep a hold of only those things that are best. So you watch a movie. Prove its spirit. What is the spirit of that movie? Is it a spirit of fornication or uncleanness or covetousness? Is it a spirit of foolish talk and jesting? Is it a spirit of virtue? May not necessarily have been wrong to watch the movie, but certainly don't hold fast to the movie if it not that which is good. You're choosing what clothes to wear. What's the spirit? Does that have a spirit of fornication, uncleanness, covetousness? Does it have a spirit of foolishness? Or does it have a spirit of virtue, of excellence? Hold fast to that which is good. You're deciding where to go. Vacation. Direction, profession, vocation, whatever it might be, try the Spirit. The direction that you're going, try the Spirit. Is it of God? Is it good? Hold fast to that which is good. Everything we watch, everything we read, everywhere we go, everything we wear, everything we listen to, every word we say, every dollar we spend, it ought to be subjected to the discernment of the Word of God. And we ought to hold fast to that which is good. Those things which are excellent, hold fast to those. Now in verse 22, we see the counter command. He says in verse 21, prove all things, Hold fast that which is good. In verse 22, he says, abstain from all appearance of evil. The counter command. Things which are noticeably opposed to that which is good. He says, abstain. This is one of the most misunderstood and perhaps I might even say one of the most mispreached phrases in all the Bible. Typically, especially in our circles, this verse is used to espouse the idea that if someone might perceive something that we're doing to be wrong, then it's our obligation to not do it, right? If, if it appears to be evil, even if it's not, if it appears to be evil, then don't do it. That's not what this verse is saying. Now, we've talked before about the principle of the weaker brethren as we see the principle in Romans chapter 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8, the idea that we should not do things in the presence of other believers that we know will offend their conscience or that will lead them to engage in something that they cannot do in faith. That's the principle of the weaker brethren. Even if I can do something in faith before God without sinning, if I lead another brother or sister in Christ into that action and they cannot do it in faith and it offends their conscience, then I have just led them into sin and therefore I indeed have sinned as well. 
So it is a sin for me to do something if I am knowingly going to offend a brother or sister in Christ by doing it in front of them, by leading them into sin or by offending their conscience. But that's not what this passage is speaking of. These are the concepts of the weaker brethren, that I limit the freedom that I have in Christ in the presence of the weaker brethren for the sake of their conscience. This passage is not saying that if something could possibly be construed by anyone as evil, that we should avoid it. If we do pursue this route, if we do pursue this interpretation of this verse, whose definition of evil do I use? How do we determine if something is evil? How do we determine if something has the appearance of evil? In whose eyes does it appear evil? Do I need to avoid any appearance of evil from the perspective of the very most conservative believers among us? Do I need to knock on the door of some Amish person or some Mennonite and say, hey, what appears evil to you? Because I need to conform myself to your standard lest I have an appearance of evil? To bind ourselves to the, uh, to bind our actions to the perceptions of others is to bind ourselves under a yoke that we simply cannot bear. We cannot bind our actions to the perceptions of others. But thank God that that is not what this verse means. And we're going to walk through the idea here, this word appearance. It's used five times in the New Testament. We're going to walk through all five verses where this word is used. And then we're going to see that it's really not even consistent for us to understand appearance in the context of perception. So let's show us, let's take a look at these verses together. The first of these verses is found in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And this verse says this, The Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape. There's our word, shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So we see the first appearance of this word, this Greek word which is translated appearance, to be when Jesus was baptized by John and the Holy Ghost descended in the bodily shape, a form, something they saw and it looked like a dove. Our second is found in Luke 9.29. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. Here we read the likeness of Jesus changing as he was transfigured on the mount before Peter, James, and John. That Peter, James, and John were looking at Jesus and his physical appearance altered. What they saw changed. Our next... um, Passage is John chapter 5, verse 37, which says this, And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. That uh, Jesus says here that no man has ever seen the physical appearance of God. They've never heard his voice. They've never seen his physical appearance, his physical form or likeness. 2 Corinthians 5.7 is our fourth passage where Paul says this, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by that which we trust and believe. We don't walk by that which we see with our eyes, by that which we are actually seeing. And then finally, 1 Thessalonians 5.22, 
abstain from all appearance of evil. Did you notice a similarity specifically in the first four uses, instances of that word? They all spoke of that which is definite and visible, not something that is subject, uh, subjective or open to interpretation. If I were to look at this chair and I were to say, that chair is red. Now, unless we're all colorblind, there could be confirmation. Now, the ladies in this room would say, no, it's not red. It's, and you'd give me some fancy, fancy uh, color. But, but I see, uh, stick with me here, it's a type of red. So I would say the chair is red. And we could confirm that. I would say this is the appearance of the chair. Now, if somebody came up and said the chair is green, we'd have a problem here. All of a sudden, would we have to conform our understanding of the chair to their perception? Well, no, we would not. Because we can see it. It's tangible. It's visible. And that's the idea of this word. This is not speaking of perception. This is speaking of that which is visible, tangible, obvious. And we carry that idea into 1 Thessalonians 5.22. This verse is not attempting to get us to consider the perception of people as pertaining to evil, their perception of what I am doing, their perception of what I am hearing, their perception of what I'm saying, their perception of what I'm wearing. Paul is attempting to get us to consider the legitimate form of the thing that they are looking at. Is it evil? Is what people are seeing in me or around me evil? As we prove all things, we understand according to God's word what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. We hold fast to that which is right. We avoid that which is obviously evil. If someone can look at what I'm doing and it is obviously evil, I need to avoid it. It's not about their perception. It's about what is true. That is what this verse is saying. It's not a verse to shackle us to perception. It's a verse that contrasts between holding fast to that which is biblically right and utterly rejecting that which is obviously biblically wrong. And if we have any doubt about this, if the context of this passage itself and the use of the word has not convinced us, let's travel back to Ephesians chapter 5. We were there already. And let's travel back there and look at verses 10 through 11. I'm going to read uh, the second half of verse 8, and then I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 for you. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Walk as children of light, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Do you see how the exact same contrast comes up in this passage that Paul says that as children of light, we need to prove that which is right, prove that which is acceptable, and we need to have no fellowship, abstain from that which is evil. It's not about whether or not Joe Schmo next to me says, well, I don't think you should be doing this or doing that. It's what does the Bible say is right? What does the Bible say is wrong? What pleases God? What doesn't please God? We hold fast to that which does please God and we abstain from that which does not please God. That's the idea of the appearance of evil, the form of evil, the shape of evil, what evil looks like. You can find out from the Bible what evil looks like. Did you know that? That's the whole idea of discernment. You can find out what looks, what, what good looks like and what evil looks like. And then you can walk into a movie store 
or you can get online, or you can go into the clothing store, or you can go to the music rack, and you can actually see what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable and what is not. And you can see that because you know what God's Word says. And that is biblical discernment. And then you hold fast to that which is good and you abstain from the appearance of evil, from those things which are apparently evil. We prove all things. We find out what is acceptable unto the Lord, not what's acceptable to your denomination, not what is acceptable to your pastor, not what is success, uh, acceptable to the most conservative among you, if we want to wrestle with those issues, we wrestle with the weaker brethren issue in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans chapter 4, excuse me, 13. But in this context, Paul is exhorting you to discern what is right, discern what is evil, discern the appearance of good and the appearance of evil, and to have nothing to do with the evil, to abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from every evil in every form that it manifests itself. If it manifests itself in entertainment, abstain from the entertainment where evil is found. If it manifests itself in clothing, abstain from the clothing where evil is found. If it manifests itself in material possessions, abstain from the possessions where evil is found. If it manifests itself in religion, abstain from those religious devotions where evil is found. If it manifests itself in self-righteousness, abstain from self-righteousness. If it manifests itself in pride, abstain from pride. This is the idea of the appearance of evil. Wherever evil is found, wherever evil takes shape, wherever evil is purposefully and obviously identifiable, abstain. If you can identify evil in it, don't go near it. I hope this makes sense. This is so different from how most people preach this passage. So I really hope it makes sense. We've learned tonight the principles of discernment, the threefold idea. We need to have an understanding of what the Bible expects. We need to have a willingness to do what the Bible expects. And we need to have a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit with respect to what the Bible expects. And tonight we've taken time to understand specifically what the Bible expects, and it's this. Prove all things. Test it all. If it's found to be good and excellent, if it's found to be right, according to the Word of God, hold fast to it. If it has within it the appearance of evil, if you can readily and obviously identify evil in it, if the body of evil is there in whatever it is, Abstain from it. This is discernment. And as the old adage goes, one can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. The Scriptures tell us faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God is not going to force your obedience. He never does. Love that is compelled is not love. Obedience that is compelled is not obedience. I can tell you what the Bible says, that Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us that we ought to yield ourselves to God, and in doing so, we can prove what is acceptable. That Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 11 tells us that things that are sinful and things that are inconvenient are things that you should discern and reject, but I can't reject them for you. 
I can tell you what 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 tells us, that we should prove every aspect of our lives, that we should hold fast to that which is most excellent, that we should reject that which has noticeable evil, according to God's Word. But I can't hold fast for you, nor can I abstain for you. The choice is yours this evening. And by the way, children, your parents can't do this for you. Your parents cannot do this for you. They can, they can set standards so that at this time you don't have access to that which is evil. But one day you're going to have to abstain. You're going to have to hold fast. They can't hold fast for you. They can't abstain for you. Fathers, we can set boundaries for our families. We can set boundaries for our children. But we've got to teach those under our care what they need to do and then we need to lead by example to show them that we, that we ought to, how we ought to do it. And so as we consider these things, the question becomes, how are we doing? Do you look at everything in life with an eye of discernment? Do you prove it all? You know, the old adage says, ignorance is bliss. And I think sometimes in the Christian world, we, we get that kind of a mindset. We don't want to really look into something because if we look into it, we might just find that we shouldn't do it anymore. But the Bible tells us, prove all things. If you're doing it, or if you want to do it, or if you're being asked to do it, test it. Check it against God's Word. See if it's excellent. See if it's evil. Hang on to that which is excellent. Abstain from that which is evil. And by the way, there might be some stuff in the middle. Some stuff that's not sin, but not the best. Good, better, and best principle. We've talked about that before. Most of us have heard that. What Paul is saying here is hold fast to that which is best. The most excellent way we saw that in, in Philippians. These things may not be sinful, but maybe they're not convenient. Maybe they're lawful, but just not expedient. Hold fast to that which is best. You may have to live in this area sometimes. You should never be over here in the evil. You may sometimes have to live in this area. But you know, the things that you ought to cling to, the things that you ought to carry with you, the things that ought to define your lives, are the things that are best. Has God put His thumb on something this evening? Maybe something you need to prove. Something that you've never even tested. You're just doing it, but you've never tested it. You've never proved it against God's Word. Would you, would you prove it against God's Word? Would you take those things in your life and open God's Word and see what God's Word has to say about it and prove them? Maybe there's some things that you need to hold fast unto. You know the more excellent way you know what's best and you just need to grab a hold of it. Maybe there's some things that you need to abstain from. You have proved it and you found that it's wanting. You found the body of evil there. You found something there that is one of those spirits of evil and you just need to let it go. Or maybe you've been living your lives under the false yoke of a misinterpretation of this verse and you've been trying your best to not give anybody the perception that you do anything wrong, that you've been uh, going about trying to live uh, shackled to everyone else's perception of evil 
and you need to renew your mind on what the Scripture is actually saying in this verse. Whatever the Holy Spirit needs to do uh, in you, I would plead with you to be humble and to yield. That God would help us to do exactly what He's asking of us this evening because it's when we're living out this proper process of discernment, proving all things, holding fast to that which is good, abstaining from all appearance of evil, that we become the kind of living testimonies that causes others to take notice, to see the reality of the truths that we are holding, and often to want what we have as well. Let's close in prayer.